Reading this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith, in love, in sanctity, with self-restraint. Let's pray. Father, we, again, just want to have our hearts, as we've sung about, yielded to you in praise, in thanksgiving, in faith, knowing that you are good and that you love us and that you do all things well. We thank you, God, that with you there is no fear, that we can come before you in humility and in confidence and know that we are received. We thank you for the grace, God, that you supply to do, Lord, as you have said, that it's not up to us, our strength, but you live in us, God, to live through us, to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so, Father, we pray that we would again just see the truth of what you want us to to hear and that we would know your grace, God, for appropriating um, all that you've said. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever seen the movie The Princess Bride, and there's that forest in there, I think they call it the forest of despair. My Bible says that's how this paragraph is introduced here. So it is a forest that once you enter into, you never come out again. Um, No man, at least, who ever's ventured into this passage has ever lived to talk about it. There are flames that come rushing up from the ground, and there is quicksand, and there are R-O-U-S's, rodents of unusual size, all through this passage. Years ago, at his hill, we had um, a mud pit. Wonderful activity. Kids just loved it. We'd flood it for two or three days and then send all the kids down there to wallow in it, play football in it and stuff, and they just loved it. One year, we had a, a guy on staff that had a, a pickup truck with a lift kit on it, so it was raised way high, and great big mud tires on it, and made lots of noise, and he thought it'd be fun to start out the mud bowl by him driving his truck through the mud pit, with all the campers lined on both sides of the mud pit, so they would get splashed with mud as he went through. And I gave in to that. <laughs> Stupid idea. Because that truck, I mean, he hit that mud at probably 30, 40 miles an hour. And it started to hydroplane. And now it's, it's skating through the mud. And I'm thinking, we're going to wipe out half the campers here. And sure enough, mud flew like a tidal wave on both sides. And 100 kids went from being clean to being just covered in mud. And they thought it was wonderful. They were screaming and yelling and all, that's great, nobody died, we will never do this again. (laughs) I feel like plowing into this passage is to repeat that mistake. (laughs) So, in the better part of wisdom, and I have experienced this, trust me, firsthand. Um, One time at his hill many years ago, when I was still young and stupid, um, I plowed into this passage, and um, it wasn't pretty. I couldn't understand why so many people hated me, and I, I really couldn't. I was shocked, and so I thought, God's word is good, God's will is good, and yet this is not being received as good. So I've thought, if I ever do this again, I think my mistake was, is that I started here rather than in Genesis. And so the next time I taught on these things, 
I have started in Genesis. Completely different response. So I'm hoping that we can repeat that because I'm going to start in Genesis today. And so on the other hand, that means next week we're going to be still talking about these things. And I will come with a goalie uniform on, um, mask and all the padding and everything. And I trust that those of you who have concealed carry permits will defend me um, and not shoot at me next week. The reason we need to go to Genesis is because consistently, when Paul brings up the subject of women's roles, consistently, not, not the exception, but consistently, he either takes us back to Genesis or he takes us to the Trinity. And here he, does, he takes us to Genesis. So it says in verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So he's taking us back to Genesis. So that's where we need to go. So if you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to make some observations here and see how what is here is what Paul is building off of when he makes his application in 1 Timothy 2. So in Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to highlight the passages here that deal with men and women and God's purpose in making us. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we need to stop and just make some basic observations here. And obviously, the first is that we, men and women, have been made in the image and likeness of God. Now, we can spend a lot of time digging into those two words, image and likeness, and to see what they mean. And to pull them apart and even see if there's any distinction between the two of them. That's not quite our goal, though, today. Without going too deep into what image and likeness means, we shouldn't miss the obvious. Male and female are both equally in the image and likeness of God. That's the obvious here. So not male is not more in the image of God than female. Female is not more in the image of God than male is. And there is some sense, and the text doesn't fully explain it to us, there is some sense in which God to be imaged in our humanity, He needed to have two sexes. Male and female. Now there's some mystery here. But clearly, he has made man in his image. And man is clearly male and female. So one sex is not more in the image of God than the other. What is true of male is true of female when, it comes, when, when we're dealing with the essence of our humanity and that we've been made in the image and likeness of God. Now, that is also true of the three persons of the Trinity. And again, Paul either goes to creation or he goes to the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity have the exact same essence. There is no distinction whatsoever. One is not more God than another. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are fully, equally God. One is not more God than another. Okay? In the same sense, we as male and female are fully, equally one in essence. That we are equal to each other. Male is not superior to female. Any more than God, the Father, is superior to Jesus in essence. They share the same essence and absolutely equal in being. That much we are to take from this. And that's a lot. But he continues. And so we also are told that male and female are given co-dominion over the earth. They both rule the earth. It was God's intention. Let them 
rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God didn't give dominion only to the man, but he gave dominion to both male and female. Human beings have dominion over this earth. That is the way God intended it to be. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And so they are to reproduce. They are to procreate. That is a command of God. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Procreate and dominate. And then later he's going to say to Adam, cultivate. Cultivate the garden. Those would be the three commands that are given. Fill the earth, procreate, dominate the earth, and cultivate the earth. Those are the commands that that God gives here. And they apply, it would seem, except maybe for the cultivation, to the equally to the male and female. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He's speaking of his creation. And what he's saying is, everything that he has made up to this point is functioning exactly as he created it to function. So he's not saying that it is moral ethically. He is, he's not saying that it is good ethically, I'm sorry. He's saying it is good in that it is functioning according to its design. That's, a, that's goodness here. And so as the man and woman have been created in the image and likeness of God, they are at this point functioning as God designed them to function. And it is good. Now chapter 2 is going back into chapter 1 and digging out some of the things there that were not spoken of in chapter 1. So in other words, portions, mainly the sixth day of the first chapter, six days of creation in the first chapter, now chapter 2 is amplifying the sixth day. But keep in mind, it's telling us that everything in the sixth day so far is good, very good. It is functioning as God designed. Now we're giving given more detail of what that function is in chapter 6. And so we're told in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. So everything is good, But there's a not good yet, and still in the sixth day. Because Adam was created in the sixth day, and Eve was created in the sixth day. So Adam's going to accomplish a whole lot on this day. But part of what happens is, is that he lives a portion of the day alone. And God looks at it and says, that's not good. And so he will form Eve, and then he will say, chapter 1, verse 31, everything is very good. So again, chapter 2 is is stepping back into the sixth day and giving us more information than what we would have had if we only had chapter 1. And so God looks at man, Adam, alone and says, that isn't good. We need to do something about it. So they make a helper for him. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians that the woman was made for the man. And that is what the scripture is telling us here. Adam was alone and God made the woman, for him. He was not made for her. She was made for him. So there's a distinction here that's being drawn. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Which happens, by the way, to speak of free will. Where God is sovereign, and he obviously knows what he's going to call them, But he's giving Adam the freedom to use his own brain and his own imagination to come up with names for each of these animals. And so that would have been a fun day, don't you think? I mean, you think of all the animals God parades by and you're going, man, what should I call that thing? And whatever you call it, that's what it's going to be called. Man, hippopotamus. I mean, how he came up with these things, crazy. But I don't know. Obviously, he didn't call it hippopotamus. He had another name for it. Reminds me of a student that saw, former student in his hill, saw a roadrunner running through the brush. This is a true story. And she's going, why is it running through the brush? It's a roadrunner. <laughs> anyway, she was quite serious. Okay, she wasn't trying to be funny. 
So continuing, verse 20. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. The man gave names. Everywhere in the Bible and in every culture, biblical or not, it is commonly understood that the power to name is an expression of authority. Whoever can do the naming or whoever does the defining, whoever is the one who says this is good and this is bad is the one that's in authority. Right now, our government has decided they have the right to define, to name what marriage is. We as Christians are conflicted because we say government doesn't have that authority to tell us, to define for us, to name what marriage is. That is the prerogative of God. But again, our government is basically acting in an atheistic way when it ignores what God has said and says we are going to put ourselves above God and say that we have the right to define what marriage is. So even in the most feminist of organizations, they understand that the power to name is inherently authoritative. And so one of their agendas is to take terms and change their meaning so as they can change people's thoughts and people's behaviors. So the power to name is inherently an authoritative thing. This is why throughout the scriptures, when you see one nation taking over another nation, one of the first things that the conquering king does is rename the territories and rename individuals. This is why Daniel and his three friends are given new names, because the king is demonstrating his absolute power over those individuals. You don't even have the right to call yourself what you want to be called. I have that right. And so naming speaks of authority. There is universal agreement on this. So when Adam is naming the animals, he is demonstrating his authority over the animals. Verse 21 So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That speaks of equality. She came from me. She is not greater than me. She is not lesser than me. She is me. This is, not was, this is Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It speaks of equality and it also speaks of of unity. She is me, I am her. Two distinct individuals, but they are one. When Deuteronomy says, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the word used for one is the exact word that's being used here when it says the two shall become one flesh. It's two entities that are so joined together that there is no separation between them. And the implication here clearly is if she is my flesh, the only way you can be separated from your flesh is through death. And no wonder we say, until death do us part. So that's what the implication here. But then he goes on, she shall be called woman. So even though we are one and we are equal, he is the head. He is the authority. And so the scripture will tell us in the New Testament that even as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of his wife. Twice we're told that in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5. And so prior to sin, before any sin entered into the picture, we have the man recognizing his equality with his wife. He is not superior to her. He is not more human than she is. He is not more in the image of God than she is. Peter will speak to the same emphasis on equality when he says, Husbands, if you do not treat your wives as a co-heir of the grace of life, then you can forget about praying because God's not listening to you. God doesn't hear your prayers. But having said that, not only does Adam recognize the intrinsic worth of his wife and that they are absolutely one, He also recognizes he is the head. He names her and not vice versa. He names her and it's a generic name. It's not a personal name at this point. Chapter 3, it'll be a personal name. 
But he called her woman because she was taken out of the man. So, so far we have male and female. They've been made in the image of God equally. One is not greater than the other when it comes to the image of God. They share the exact same essence. There is no superiority or inferiority of essence. But they are distinct. One is male and one is female. And God intended them to be distinct. When male acts like female or female acts like male, and either it is the way that we dress or the way that we behave, when there is no clear distinction between male and female, God is not being imaged clearly. I think that's a fair conclusion to come to. God made this man distinctly male and made this woman distinctly female. And one of the things that society has, has pushed really hard to do, especially in the last 20, 30 years, is to blur the distinctions and to take away the distinctions. And yet as much as we try to do it, it is impossible to get away from the fact that it is, we are different from each other. Even in the medical field, where they also have had this political pressure on them to, to, to care for men and women as though there is no distinction. They're recognizing more and more that there are no similarities in much of what's going on in medicine. Chemotherapy has to be administered different. Everything has to be administered different because the fundamental differences that we have as male and female have to be recognized. We are distinct, and it is meant to be that way. But we are complementary. I remember a professor one time was talking on these things in a class I had, and, he, and he, he brought in a pair of shears that he had separated. So he had the left half of the pruning shears and the right half of the pruning shears, and when he brought them to class, he said, what good is this one half by itself? But, you put the, but, they, but they are opposites. They look the same, but upon closer inspection, they are opposites, and those opposites are made to complement each other. And so when you put them together... Functioning as a unit, they function according to God's design. That's a great analogy. So what good is half a shear? But what good is two shears of the same half? They need to be opposite halves. And when they come together, they can function as God intended for them to function, and that is called good. And so distinct, equal, complementary. They function together complementing each other, and also ordered, headship. Headship is not only designated in the man naming his wife, but is also designated in the fact that he was created first. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, the man came first, therefore he is the head of his wife. It was the same thing that John the Baptist said concerning Jesus. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. And yet John says concerning Jesus, the one who came before me is over me. The one who existed before me is over me. So being created first makes, denotes authority. Jesus wasn't created, but John the Baptist recognized he, he existed prior to John Therefore, he is over John. And the woman came after the man in creation order, and the man is over his wife. Everything's good. Equal, but distinct. And there is authority and headship. And it is all good. There is no sin in these first two chapters. More and more with the students at some point, usually several times a year, I will put up a triangle on the whiteboard, say this is the Trinity, Father at the top, Son, Holy Spirit. And then I say, let's just list everything that is true of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything that's true of that relationship. We'll just make a list going down the board. And all kinds of things we can list. Love, right? Trust. Safety, respect, openness, there are no secrets within the Trinity, equality, and all, I mean, you just go down the list. 
And basically, everything that you would ever want in a relationship has existed from all of eternity within the Trinity. Right? So that's why every other relationship is dysfunctional. And what God does is not try to make our relationships functional. That's, he brings us into an existing functional relationship. He makes us one with himself. It's what John 17 is really all about. Father, make them one with us. That the joy that we have might be in them. That is the most joyful relationship that has ever existed. Is a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Joy, equality, respect, openness, honesty, protection, safety. Everything you'd ever want is in that relationship. I want that. Oh God, I want all of that. And God says, and I want that for you. But also in this relationship, and you can't pick and choose which parts you like, is headship, authority, submission, and obedience. It is all in the Trinity. No wonder God makes male and female in His image, and that marriage relationship is supposed to have in it everything that is in the Trinity. We are imaging God in our marriages when there is joy and love, and protection, and respect, and kindness, and equality. And we are imaging God when there is authority, and submission, and obedience. It all images God. If it is something that God is producing in us through faith. And it's not something we are adequate to do in and of ourselves. It is good when it is all present. Take away something we don't like. I don't like the submission part. It's not good. I don't like the authority part. It's not good. I think we need to be, be co-heads, two heads. Try that out. It's not good. Well, nobody needs to lead. We'll just both. It's not good. It has to be what God designed. And when it is, it's very And God is imaged. So in chapter 3, everything turns upside down. And in fact, even the order of the first part of this chapter is upside down. Literally. Because in chapter 1, God. First person mentioned God. And then the apex of God's creation, man. And it wasn't good for man to be alone, woman. And they both are given dominion over all the animals of the world. And then in chapter 3, first thing mentioned, animal. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast. Next person mentioned, woman. Next person mentioned, man. And then the very last, God. It was the rabbis from hundreds of years ago that recognized this is a complete role reversal. Instead of God being first, man second, woman under the man, both of them sharing dominion over the earth, it's the animal first, and then the woman, and then the man, and then God, and now we have chaos in the world today. This was not lost on those ancient Jewish rabbis. So we know the serpent comes and deceives the woman, won't get into all the details of this, and the man was with her and he took of her and took of what she offered and ate. One writer that I, that I read said that hers was the sin of initiation and his was the sin of acquiescence. Something to ponder. And then they died spiritually. The serpent said, you will not die. What does that tell us? He lies. Satan is a liar. And when Satan is, if there is a competing voice, and we won't always know it's the voice of Satan, we may think it's the serpent of, the the voice of something else. This woman had no reason to suspect that this serpent was being indwelt by Satan. We don't even know that she'd ever even encountered Satan. But she didn't need to know about Satan. All she needed to know was the voice that I'm hearing is contrary to the word of God. Enough. Should be enough. And there are so many voices today telling us, That the word of God is wrong when it comes to what it says about men and women. 
It is the voice of the serpent. It is the voice of Satan. It will always result in a lie, in death, as it did here. So the eyes of the both of them were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So he's blaming God and blaming the woman. Which is what sin does. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Which is a lot closer to the truth and less of a pushing away from it than the man, but nonetheless, it isn't the whole truth. She's not taking responsibility. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and, on your du- and, and dust you shall eat in all the, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have not and, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till, the, till you return to the ground because from it you were taken and, from it, and you are but dust and to dust you shall return. We need to pull apart a little bit what God's saying to the man and the woman. Without skipping over the serpent, but that's not germane to the topic this morning. One thing, though, here in 316, I'm sorry, in 315, he will, the serpent, you will, this, this, this man that's coming, the seed of the woman is going to bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. Again, virtually universal agreement that this is the first presentation of the gospel in the Bible. And interestingly, I believe Adam and Eve receive it as such. If we have time, we'll get into the details of that. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Now, they both died. They died spiritually, and many believe that they would have died physically that day If God had not intervened. But there is no question they died spiritually that day. That's why Adam is hiding from God. Adam and Eve both. There is a separation. Their sin has separated them from God. And they are now spiritually dead. As God said would happen. And it is possible they would have died physically that same day. If God had not intervened. Equal death. The wages of sin is death. Men die because of their sin. Women die because of their sin. That speaks of the equality. But there nonetheless is distinction between male and female. Equality does not mean sameness. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. But they are not the same. They are distinct persons with distinct roles. That is true of the Trinity, and it is true of our humanity between husband and wife, men and women. Equal in essence, distinct persons with distinct roles. And one of the ways that we know the distinction, that there is distinction, and that we are not the same, is how sin impacts us from a day-to-day basis. It hits us at the core of our being. And the core of our being is sexual. We are either male or female. And you cannot separate your sex from who you are. And, and again, Christian writers and non-Christian alike have written extensively on these things. We do not just have male and female bodies. 
We have male and female souls. That is a given. And we could develop that more, but again, there is great agreement on these things. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest writers on these things, uh, as well as many others. And so your masculine soul is different than a feminine soul, and vice versa. It's not just our bodies, but our very souls, which are masculine and feminine. And when it comes to sin, even though we both die, sin impacts us as men and as women. And there are different ways in which sin impacts us. For the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Childbirth is not sin. So everything in this passage is not sin. There are parts of these statements here that God makes that are not sin. Before sin entered the picture, God said, fill the earth, have babies. So childbirth is not a consequence of sin. We would all understand that. But what is a consequence of sin is pain in childbirth. Apparently, there would not have been any if it weren't for sin. There are Hebrew scholars, I was reading one, that... um, that went into that pain extending even to the monthly cycle that a woman has. That that too is a consequence of sin. Childbirth, pain. And in pain you shall bring forth children. The, cons- the sin aspect is the pain, not the childbirth. Now we get to the more difficult part. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And what we do today, many people, is they say it is the husband ruling, which is the consequence of sin, not the wife's desire for her husband. Because how can desire be a negative thing? But that reverses the order of the poetry in the previous verse, where it says pain, childbirth. Childbirth, the second part, is not the sin. And now, desire, husband rule over you. So there's a reversal going on in the poetry if it is true that the husband ruling over you is a consequence of sin. But we've already seen in chapter 2, Adam was ruling over his wife. He was the head of his wife. Don't take that as as beating her down, as not treating her as an equal, not treating her with respect, any more than that would be true of the Trinity. The father rules over the son. And there is no disrespect, there is no demeaning, there is is no enslavement, there is respect, joy, everything we would want. And the same thing is what God has designed for the marriage. So the husband's headship is not the consequence of sin. That is clear in Scripture. Well, how can desire then? Depends on how you define desire. And Moses does for us in chapter 4. So look at chapter 4 of Genesis and verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and what? And its desire is for you. But you must master it. So in this context, same author, next chapter over, Moses is saying, desire in this meaning, in this usage, means to want to control. Because of sin, a woman does not want to be under the authority of her husband. And that's a fact. And it gives great encouragement to me to know I'm not going to be shot that I see female heads nodding in agreement. Thank you for that. It's not just a woman, though, who doesn't want to be ruled over. Men don't want to be ruled over either. That's because of the rebellion that is entered into our heart because of sin. Nobody likes to be told what to do. And that's just basic to our humanity. But a woman, basic to her sexuality, is her relationships to her husband and to, as mother to her children. And, and so a woman many times will feel she has no identity if she has no husband and no children. That's not true for a man. 
A man doesn't feel that he has no identity if he has no wife and children, generally speaking. A man's identity is wrapped up in what he does, his vocation, what he accomplishes, and not so much in whether he's married or not or has children or not. But it is very difficult for a woman to feel that she is what God created her to be and to be single or to have no children. And so that's something that a woman has to struggle with. And so here we see that, that the sin is, is uniquely affecting this woman in the area where she finds her identity, in her relationship to husband and children. And so when those relationships are bad, she really struggles with her identity, even more than a husband does. Dad's got kids that are running off crazy, you know, lost in the weeds, and Dad's going, well, hopefully they'll come back someday, you know, and if they don't, you know, well, they made their choice. And the wife is going, ah, ah, right? Because her whole life is wrapped up in those kids. A man's whole life is wrapped up in whether he's going to get his money for the paycheck. What's going to happen if he gets fired? What am I going to do? And, it, and, and so it's, we're different. The core of our being, we are different while still being the same. So the desire here speaks of the desire to be in control rather than to be under headship. And then the man cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat from it. It wasn't going to be toil before. Yes, it was going to be work, but it wasn't going to be painful work. It's going to resist you with thorns and thistles. That wasn't going to happen before. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread. That wasn't going to happen before. And then you spend your whole life fighting because the thing that ought to be responding easily to you is resisting you. And this is why men, if the wife rises up and says, man, just let me go out and work. Let me do it. You know, and the guy's going, really, you want to? You mean I can go fishing? Great. And so we would rather buy, all, spend all our, all our expendable money, say, you know, spend um, discretionary money buying shotguns and rifles and, and boats than to be thinking about in, in, investing in our, in our jobs, our careers. That's why so many young men, as long as they've got, a, got enough money to, to make a pickup truck payment, they're fine. And they're not thinking down the future even about their own vocation because they're just thinking of the immediate about the job that they've got. And we don't like the pushback. We don't want to enter strongly into it. We just don't. And there's something in us that is, as the pushback continues to come and we're constantly feeling like we're trying to knock down walls. And at the end, we realize no matter what I do, it's for nothing. It is futile. No matter how many degrees I have behind my name, no matter how much money I'm making, and I can be at the king of the pile, top of the pile, but in the end, it is futile. I'm going to die and leave it all to somebody else. That's exactly how Solomon described it. It is vanity. And that's what men struggle with. What is my purpose? What is, how is this vocation going to get me anywhere? How can I really say that I am anything? Read Ecclesiastes. It's exactly what the most powerful, richest man on this earth was struggling with. It is vanity. And he was dealing with vocational type of stuff. And the scripture saying, you are going to live your life as a man feeling like everything you do is futile. Because in the end, you're going to go right back into the dirt that you've spent your life trying to conquer. That's what he's saying. So what do we have? Nothing at the end of this chapter says it's very good. It's a mess. So let me wrap it up with some observations. And this is where Paul's going to be taking us in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. When a woman is operating in fear, I, I am indebted to Larry Crabb on this from a book he wrote a number of years ago. When a woman is operating in fear, she will seek to be in control rather than to lose control or to give control to another. We have sometimes mixed projects at our Bible school, His Hill. 
And because we always have more girls than guys, almost every mixed project group, there'll be more girls in it than guys. And I can predict, and I am not a prophet, how it's going to go. All the girls will look to the guy and say, do something. And the guy goes, why should it be me? You guys, you, 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 why should it be? I don't want to do anything. And so the girls are going, if, if he doesn't do something, nothing's going to happen. And we're all going to fail. And so the girls just kind of push him aside and they step up and take charge. Because they're scared to death of what this bozo is going to do over here. Right? He's not doing anything. And the guy's sitting there going, hey, if you want to lead, fine. So she's stepping forward and taking control, not out of faith, but out of fear. And he's sitting back and doing nothing, not out of faith, but out of fear. So a woman begins to take initiative when she's scared. And a man gets more and more passive when he's scared. Because our sexuality is different. And sin is impacting us on the basic level of our sexuality. A woman will feel that if she submits, that somehow she's going to lose her identity. If another person is telling me what to do, I'm going to lose my identity. A man feels that if he pushes forward, and that's met with resistance, then he's going to fail. And that will affect his identity. Because his identity is wrapped up in him accomplishing, in him doing. And so he won't even try sometimes because he's so paralyzed by the fear of failure. We are different. We are equal, but we are not the same. Why is this so important? This whole topic of male and female and being appreciative of the differences that God has made. I've come to believe, and people think I harp on this too much. Sorry. It's important to me. It's come to be very important to me. And I believe, and I got this at Dallas Seminary, of all places, you know, where you spend all your time just studying the Greek. And, and, and I so much appreciated one of the professors there who, who really helped us to think deeply on these things. And I'm always, always thinking, how does this relate to my relationship with Jesus? Because again, it's got to come back to Christ and faith in Him. And this professor was so helpful to me. And he was saying, think about how God relates to this world. God does not have a body. He is, he is not purely either male or female. It would be more accurate to say He is neither than He is one or the other. But there is a sense in which he is both. And that sense is played out in how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other. Male has been designed by God to be the sex of initiative. And female designed by God to be the sex of response. It is not exclusive. Those are generalities. Generally speaking, God has made the man to take gracious initiative toward his wife. And the woman to respond in faith. It is a faith response to receive and not push back against, but to receive in gratitude and in faith that initiative. How does that relate toward us and God? God, who is neither male nor female, always in Scripture, there is no exception, presents himself as male. There is no exception. There are probably hundreds, if not thousands of times in Scripture where God is referred to in the masculine. It is always a masculine pronoun, he or him. It is never she or her. Never. There is a reason for that. When God speaks of the church or God speaks of the world, he presents us as female. There is a reason for that. The church, the body of Christ, is both male and female, but it is the bride of Christ. And the Savior is male. There is a reason for these things. And what's being shown to us is is deeply significant. And it is that only God can save us. And if God doesn't take the initiative to us, we are without hope. And when he takes that initiative, all he's looking for is a faith response that says, thank you. 
and we are saved. It is God initiating and the world responding in faith. That is how the Christian life works. And so when we start messing with male and female, we are actually messing with something that is deeply theological. We are messing with salvation and sanctification itself. Because the same way that we're saved is the way that we're sanctified. God, it is your activity and is me simply responding in faith to your activity. And this is why, and so you look at every religion of the world, without exception, it is based on works. It is what we do that God responds to. And if I do enough, maybe He'll save me. Maybe He'll respond. That is the exact opposite of what Scripture says. I take the initiative, you respond in faith, you simply receive, and if you don't receive, you won't be saved. That is what Scripture says. And the same thing, all the debates among Christians about how the Christian life lived, it either comes down to what we do, our works, hoping that God will respond, or it is what God does and we respond to Him. It is fundamental. So we start messing with male and female, and how... And basically, Scripture is saying you have gutted the primary object lesson that God has for us of both how to be saved and how to live once we've been saved. It is that important. No wonder the spirit of this world and the devil is so much against us having a clear distinction between male and female. Because the devil's not stupid. And he understands he can mess us up on this, then he can mess up how you get saved, and he can mess up how you live out your salvation. And everything he tells us is a lie. No wonder when Paul talks about this, he knows this is that force from which no man will ever come out from if he doesn't start with creation and also the Trinity. I know two evangelical men that if I may mention their names, you'd, every person in this room would know who I'm talking about. Written tons of books, popular, pastor mega churches. And these men deny that there is a basic distinction in role between husband and wife and between leadership of the church, male leadership, and women. And so both of these men, and one of them has told me to my face, that, that any woman can be a pastor, elder of a church. And even within the home, there is no headship. Because they firmly believe that headship is a consequence of sin. To get there, those men understand because they're not ignorant about the scriptures. You cannot have headship within the Trinity. And so they take the passages that concern the Trinity. And they say... The Father is not the head of Jesus. And that any, three, any of the three persons of the Trinity could have become the Son of Man because the Son of Man was not from eternity the Son of Man. They know they have to mess with the Trinity itself because everything the Scripture says about men and women is rooted in Adam and Eve and in the Trinity. These things have grave consequences, not only for how we live, but for all that we believe to be true and good. And God wants us to come to His conclusion. His design is very good. I'll close us in prayer. Lord, thank you again.